if you think about using a technology to replace what we do, then you're not making any improvement. Maybe you're decreasing cost a little bit, but you're not improving anything. And the way I think about AI is augmenting human capabilities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Nina Kotler. Dr. Kotler has been a practicing radiologist specializing in emergency imaging for over 17 years. Combining her clinical experience with a graduate degree in applied mathematics, she has been using technology innovation to drive value in radiology. As the first radiologist to join Radiology Partners, Dr. Kotler has held multiple leadership positions with her practice and is currently the Associate Chief Medical Officer for Clinical AI. I'm personally just so excited to have Dr. Kotler on the show to talk everything radiology, AI, entrepreneurship, like so many of my favorite things come together in your personal career experience. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I, and I know many of the people who listen to this will find your both career inspiring as well as views on the sort of future of radiology very informative. So thanks for coming on. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us, Dr. Collier, tell us about your background. Where'd you grow up and how did you find your way into radiology? So I grew up in a suburb outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and my path to go into radiology is actually very circuitous. It's definitely not intentional. <laughs> my father was a successful physicist and leader. He worked for MIT's Lincoln Labs and NASA and JPL used to call him. And I, I just looked up to him so much that I wanted to go into the same things that he did. So as a physicist, I ended up going into applied mathematics. And I was going to get my PhD in applied mathematics when I ended up meeting someone in graduate school who was getting his master's and then he was going into radiology. And it was something I, I mean, like I'd heard of radiology, but I didn't know anything about it. And he asked me to help him with his master's project, which was doing a mathematical model of the kidney. And in order to do that, I had to learn about the physiology of the kidney. And I found that physiology is so much more interesting than the differential equations we were using to model it that I just, I got fascinated. And I ended up following in his footsteps instead of my father's. And I had to go back to do pre-med and do medical school. It took like another seven years for me to finally graduate. But I ended up after that going into radiology and I've been happy ever since. What a funny route. And it's just a another reminder of the value of mentors and spontaneous connections that you can't imagine will end up influencing your life and career. So you fast forward a bit, you become the first radiologist to join Rad Partners. How did that happen? What what drew you to that opportunity? I was actually working at another job. I was living in Sydney, Australia, which was a, a wonderful place to live. And I was doing teleradiology, so remote radiology for the U.S., but because the hours in Australia are like 15 hours different, I could read during the daytime for stuff that was being done at night. So I felt really good about what I was doing because I was helping out the, uh, you know, the practices in the U.S. and helping out patients. But the job ended up changing a lot. And radiology was in 2012 became a kind of a depressing time. The reimbursements were going down. There weren't a lot of jobs that were out there. RADs weren't happy. Things were 
becoming commoditized and people were talking about radiology as a commodity. And I was like, that is not why you know radiology. Radiology has a huge amount of value. And I'm just an optimist at heart. I, I generally frame things as in the positive. And so in that environment, I was excited about how we could make change, right? Every challenge is an opportunity in disguise. So how could you take something that was pretty negative and, and turn it to something positive? And at the same time, I ended up meeting Rich and Anthony. So Rich is the CEO of Radiology Partners and Anthony is the COO, now president of Radiology Partners. And they were two people who had started a practice, a radiology practice with the idea that if you bring practices together and use scale along with technology and drive quality, then you could provide much more value back into the system than we were providing at the time. And that spoke to me quite a lot. So I ended up meeting them in a super random way. There was actually an email that was sent out by one of them to anyone who was in the UCLA list serve. And a friend of mine, because I had moved back to the US at that time, a friend of mine where I lived just forwarded it to me and it said, if you know any forward thinking radiologists, we would love to meet and talk to them. And so he sent me this email and I'm like, who are these people? Originally, they weren't rads. I called up a mentor. You mentioned mentors. So I called up a mentor of mine and I'm like, should I write back? Should I investigate this? And my mentor's like, no, they're not radiologists. They could never <laughs> practice. Stay away. <laughs> so the like, uh, value of mentors and the, the downside of mentors. <laughs> I know. So who's my other mentor? I call my mom. I'm like, mom, you know, is this something? <laughs> like, oh, go for it. Try it. So I wrote them back and I said, here's who I am. And, you know, if you guys want to meet, let's talk. And, and we did. They wrote back right away and we met and we were just finishing each other's sentences. They were excited about the value that the radiology could provide if we did more things to drive quality, to add back uh, some of the things that we had done in the past, but use technology and other mechanisms to do it. And, and scale would really help. And I was like, right on, I'm all in. And they said, we would love to work with you but we have no radiology practice yet. It's just the two of us. So there's no radiology <laughs> for you to do. And I'm like, well, I'm all in. I'm going to join anyway. So it, you know, that was back in very early 2013 when I joined and it was uh, three people and uh, a grand mission to transform radiology. So many places to take this. I think one just lesson that has really been consistent across so many of the podcasts that I've done is these curiosity moments that come up and being willing to chase them is really important. And I, I think you clearly exemplified that in multiple times in your life, you know, going to Australia and working for a teleradiology practice. We didn't yeah. get into that, but that was probably pretty crazy at the time. The other thing that I think is really, you know, I'm just coming from AUR and AUR, big radiology conference, a lot of third years, fourth year trainees who are starting to hit the job market, they don't understand the world of 2012 at all. And it's a completely different world that you are coming into. And so I'm super interested in sort of the cycles that these things go through. But anyway, at this time of sort of a depressed market, a malaise within the industry, you found these people, these innovators, you saw it positively. And then you said, hey, I'm going to join this. And we're going to do a startup together hard for people to remember that there was a time when Radiology Partners was a startup. It was two people in a dream and then three 
did you always have the startup bug? Did you see yourself as someone who was going to do something like that? Did you fully appreciate the extent to which you're getting into a startup and what that would be? Like, where does that entrepreneurial drive come from? No, I mean, I think my story is kind of funny in that, like, I never knew I wanted to be a radiologist. I didn't know anything about AI, but now I'm doing all those things. I didn't know anything about being an entrepreneur. I never thought about it. I didn't know what it would be like to be in a startup. I just always go with my heart. I mean, what drives me are the culture, the values, and the people of who I'm with. And if I'm aligned with what I want to do and what they want to do, I'm all in and I want to join. And so I think that's mostly what drove me. I never had any idea of what it would be like. I never would have thought that we'd grow from one rad, which I, I mean, I wasn't a co-founder. I was just the, the first radiologist to join. So they call me rad one, but to go from rad one to rad like 3,300 just seems crazy. And the journey has been crazy. And I didn't imagine any of it. But I think what you said, Dan, is true that you just have to be willing to try new things. You don't have to know where you're going. You just have to be willing to invest in something new and open to learning and open to change, which can be very scary, but also very exciting. Yeah. And you know that's what this podcast has been like for me. I was always pretty afraid of doing something like this internally, we've called this project turtle about getting out of my shell because, you know, I've been running this company, but maybe a little behind the scenes. And so it's like, oh, okay, well maybe I you know, get out there and talk to people more about it. And so taking the risk is, I didn't know what it would be like, and I've been so happy with it. So just kind of chasing your curiosities where they go is really key. But so, okay, you didn't go from one to 3,200 overnight. So what was it like those first early years? What were some of the unexpected challenges? Was it Smooth sailing from day one, you know, obviously it definitely wasn't. So how, what were some of like those first kind of years like where you're just trying to get anyone to take you guys seriously? And <laughs> what were, what were some of the like maybe core primitives, core building blocks to actually building a company? So that is very true. What you said that no one took us seriously. And I guess I'm a very trusting person. And if I believe that someone has a good heart, I'm going to go with them and trust that and build something together. And not everyone sees things the same way. I mean, as we should be, we should question what we're doing. And so in the beginning, everyone questioned what we're doing. They're like, hey, people have tried this before and they've all failed. Why are you going to succeed? And so it was difficult in the first stage was just developing a business, developing the trust making sure that people understood that we were different because it's hard to imagine something different when you've only looked back in the past and seen people do things the wrong way. They just imagine you're going to do the same. So that was sort of the first stage was getting trust, getting out there and, and just talking to people. In that first stage, I had to wear a lot of different hats. Uh, I was never involved in, in sales per se. That's not really who I am. I'm more a back-end kind of person. I was working on operations. I was talking about developing teams. The first practice that joined us when we really became a practice was back in June of 2013. So it was a few months after I joined. And that first practice was Eagle. And they were out of Oklahoma and Texas and they had nine radiologists. And at that time we became a true radiology practice. And with that, you have operations you have to run, but you're starting very small. And things are very difficult at that time because you don't have resources. Everyone has to wear a thousand hats. You've got to do everything. So when they joined, I was asked to create a teleradiology group 
that would support that radiology practice. We also had to create a PACS because we didn't have access to a PACS and there's a big story behind all of that. Um, but all of that had to be done really quickly. And when you start looking into what that means, well, gosh, it, you have no legal team. There's no team that manages MedMal, like, like you're doing it all. So you're creating contracts and consulting with legal team. You're figuring out what legal liability has to be and how to get MedMal and make sure everyone's covered. You're talking with the radiologist to figure out a schedule to make sure that schedule works. You're making sure everyone's trained. Like there's so many things. It's actually, it was one of the most exciting times in my life just being able to own something holistically and drive it to fruition. So that first stage, while it was really challenging, I found it invigorating. I think you mentioned one of the things that, like what are the things that were challenging but also helped us get through? The biggest thing was what draw me to join radiology partners in the beginning. And that it's that we had a mission. Our mission was to transform radiology we developed a culture from very early on, and that culture was driven by our values, right? What are the things that we're going to use to make decisions when we come into difficult times? And our values we called ITESA, so integrity, teamwork, excellence, service, and accountability, I-T-E-S-A. And when we had those difficult decisions we had to make, we would go back to our values to decide how to do that. And those are things that really speak to me because they're values I personally believe in. And I knew that we could make good decisions if we're basing it on a mission that I was excited about and values that I believed in. And just one last thing, because you mentioned us as a company, one of our practice principles, which is a really deep part of our culture, is that we're a practice and not a company. And it's a single word difference. You think it's not a big deal, but words really matter. And if you're a company, then you're in business to make money. And if you're a practice, then you're in business to take care of patients. And we mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that we were set up as a business to take care of patients primarily. So that would also drive our decisions. So exciting, crazy time, um, but you need to have a really strong culture to drive yourself in the right direction. So I have a funny story about the early days of your building of your technology stack. Our head of sales, Joey Timbers, came from a company called QGenda. And he was one of their first sales reps, like back in 2012. And he was calling on radiology practices to get them to adopt QGenda. QGenda, you may know, is like a big scheduling software. And he said one day he gets a call and, and uh, the team gets a call. They go, hey, we're, we're Red Partners. Um, we only have a few radiologists, but we're going to need licenses for about 2000 radiologists or something but we're only like 20 today and everyone was like how do we price this contract what are, who are these people who do they think they are and so i imagine you're you're in the similar boat you get nine radiologists and you're like okay we need a pax we need a we need a vendor neutral you know a viewer we need all these different things and you're but at the same time you're, you're just running a practice of nine people and so the scaling and when to scale and how to bring in technology is such a fun problem to work through it is. I don't know. Is it Carl Sagan that had that quote, in order to make an apple pie, you have to first create the universe? Well, and that's what's so funny. And I imagine, fast forward a little bit, but one of the things that's probably exciting for you and also like, man, we're kind of just getting started is you said, you know, one of the reasons you wanted to get into this business, you know, this new way of doing radiology is because you see all the ways that the field can add value. 
but for the first several years, you're probably just building a brick and mortar radiology practice. And my guess is, but maybe this is wrong and feel free to correct me, that radiology practiced at RP today doesn't look that, that different than radiology practiced maybe eight years ago. And that you're just getting to the scale where now some of these technologies are ready, some of the scale you now have. And so you're maybe like just getting into that next decade of evolution. Is that is that a fair characterization of where you are with your role today? I actually think it's a little different. I think unless we tried to do something different from early on, we wouldn't have been successful. We would have been just like every mm. other radiology practice consolidator because just having scale is not enough. I mean, scale, you need culture, but you also need to drive value. Value is improve quality or outcomes, do it at a at lesser cost. You have to do one of those things. And we mm -hmm. tried to make sure that that we consolidated for scale because you, you need scale in order to make a difference, right? If if we're a practice of five people and we do something extraordinary, no one cares. But if we're a practice of 5,000 people and we do something extraordinary, then other people have to follow. That's when you start to change a specialty instead of just changing a practice. So scale is important. You also need the culture, which we talked about, uh, because that's what drives and motivates people. People care about the why and how they feel. And then the last piece, which is not the least important, but probably one of the most important is to do something to change quality. So we started really in, in 2013 with our first practice. And then in 2014, we started what we called our clinical value team. And that was a team comprised of the chief medical officer, Jay Bronner, and it had our director of clinical quality, Utma Rawal, and, and I joined as sort of the operator. So the three of us together were tasked by Rich and Anthony to figure out how can you measure quality so that you can improve it. In God we trust, but everyone else must bring data. So if, if you don't have data, you can't improve anything. And at that time in 2012, 2013, all of the quality metrics in radiology were operational metrics. They were like turnaround time, peer review, which is really not a quality metric. And there were no scorecards really measuring that very well. So anytime someone said, well, I'm the highest quality radiology practice, they were just basically raising their hand saying, well, I'm better and I'm better. So Rich and Anthony tasked us to actually figure out what is a true measure of quality and how can you measure it to make sure that we can improve it. So this was back early on 2014. And we started with looking at the radiology report and decreasing variability in the radiology report, we started with something like really simple saying incidental thyroid nodules. There is a best practice out there, papers that are written that said population health will improve if you do follow up on these kinds of nodules and don't do follow up on these kinds. And when we looked at our own practice to see how often we were following that, it was, it was a flip of a coin. Half the people were following it, half weren't. So the idea was, let's use that as a quality metric. That's a true measure of quality because it, it improves patient outcomes. And if we had a way to teach people about it, measure how well they were doing, go back to them and do that, like the whole PDSA cycle, then we could do a quality improvement project that really drove value in radiology. It was a very small one to start because we wanted to make sure we'd be successful, but we expanded from there. So very early on, we worked on quality metrics. Really great story. And hearing sort of how quality has been something you guys have thought about how to measure and improve over time is really informative. And also 
it's funny because everyone thinks about AI so quickly right now, but there's so much process and workflow and training and standardization stuff that, you know, a tool go on day and some of the early pioneers. And, you know, I was an industrial engineering major in college. This is like our, you know, we go crazy over this stuff. But to your point, that variability is a little bit hard when you have a 10 person boutique group, as opposed to you have 5,000 people. And now you can start to really think about the impact of a 5% incremental gain starts having profound population impacts. So it makes a ton of sense. And now as you look at the next decade, maybe the low-hanging fruit of process improvement is being replaced with AI. You know, Not to imply the radiologists are being replaced by AI in any sense. Just the next set of gains comes from some of these new technologies. So your, your new role is Associate Chief Medical Officer of Clinical AI. What's on your mind? What are you doing? What's going on there? Yeah, so my whole job is essentially getting to think about AI, which is really nice. I feel like I should, you know, pinch myself to make sure it's okay because normally your job as a radiologist is just to read cases and your side job is to do anything else to make improvements. And it's really hard to have a side job and, and do a great job at it. So I get to do 100% of my time, although I do read, but 100% of my time I spend thinking about the strategy for artificial intelligence, what kind of use cases we should either partner with, create, buy, utilize, work with our hospital partners on. And then a large part of it is because AI right now is very new. The people that are using it are early adopters. And when you have early adopters using it, there's no best practices, right? The way that you get from an early adoption to a greater adoption or to become more standard of care is to have best practices. And those don't exist. It's literally like the wild west out there. And you hear about all this hype about the great things that AI can do, but without understanding how to deploy it and figuring out all of the issues that you have to overcome to deploy it, it's very difficult. So we spend a lot of time working on how do you have a best practice for evaluating an NAI vendor, determining if clinically or technologically that a model is going to work in your environment? How do we educate our radiologists to make sure that the radiologists are educated consumers of a technology? People think, oh, you just put a technology next to someone, good, you're done. It's, it's like upgrading your viewer. All you have to do is a little bit of buttonology. It's totally not the case with AI. AI is a clinical tool and you need to teach people how to use it and ingest it clinically. And understanding that has been a huge amount of the lessons that we've learned. How do we educate our radiologists about where AI works, where it doesn't, where it's going to have the most advantage and where you're going to have the most advantage so you can bring the two together. So that's the majority of my job. And it was a progression to get there. A lot of things like it may sound like, oh, I got there overnight. It was super easy. It's actually been a long journey. When we first started doing these best practice recommendations, which were the clinical best practices for follow-up back in 2014, 2015, after we did a few of them, we realized we needed a technological tool to help us because we can't just keep telling radiologists, well, just remember this. Now remember this other one. There's one for incidental thyroid nodules. Here's the follow-up. Remember that. Now remember one about pulmonary nodules, and now remember one about a nexal cyst, and now about triple A's. Right, like you get to a point where you're not using the human brain in the way that it is best utilized. So we realized we needed technology to do that. That's how I started getting involved in AI. So it's been a journey, but it's been a really exciting one. And 
What I enjoy now is I get to help create the pathway forward for how we might utilize and deploy AI in a way that it will help improve patient care. You know, you mentioned we're sort of in the early adopter phase, both it sounds like there's early adopter radiologists who just are cutting edge, they tinker and they want to adopt these things. There's areas of specialties where the use cases are super obvious, maybe before others. Um, and then obviously you guys maybe have a bigger IT budget than others. And so you're able to start messing around with these things a little earlier. I'm curious, you know, Steve Jobs has this quote that like in order for a new technology to gain adoption, it needs to be 10x better than the status quo, not just 50% better, 2x better. And it makes a ton of sense uh, because we're people of habits. And then if you think about radiology, it might even need to be 100x better because radiology is not just a field that exists in isolation, but you have an emergency department that depends on radiology to do its job. And so you can't just change everything overnight. There's all these different stakeholders and, and not to mention the economic models have to make sense. So there's a lot of inertia to overcome. Where are you seeing sort of these 10X improvements? Like, are there examples that you can think of? And one of the things you and I talked about prior to this call was how usually it's the AI plus the human, which is great. You've got the human and the AI coming together, but they're producing results that are exponential as opposed to maybe just linear improvements. So what are some examples that you're starting to see there? So I think that's a super important point, And I hope people are able to hear that. What you said is very true. If you think about using a technology to replace what we do, then you're not making any improvement. Maybe you're decreasing cost a little bit, but you're not improving anything. And the way I think about AI is augmenting human capabilities. Now, AI is a computer system. It's very different than a human. And we each have different capabilities. So how could we bring them together in the best way so that you are getting an exponential improvement, a one plus one equals five, instead of a one plus one equals one, right? So how do you do that? That's not obvious. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to figure out. I'll tell you that we've run AI since 2018. We've been deploying AI and we've used computer vision. We've used NLP models. And in all of that time, what we found is that there are certain things that the AI is very good at that humans are not. For instance, a computer vision AI will pick up some very subtle findings that a human might miss or a finding where their history is not so helpful. And because of the history, the radiologist is looking somewhere else. And so there's something that the AI finds because AI is not looking at the history, right? It has sort of a different set of things that it's learning. And so how can you bring those two together to improve? So when I was getting all of these cases early on, we were running AI in the background, which means the RAD didn't clinically get the AI result. We wanted to see how it worked before we deployed it. So we ran it in the background. And then anytime there was a discrepancy between the radiology report and the AI computer vision that was looking at the image, I would get those cases and I took a look at all of them. And what I found was that not only did the AI pick up these like certain things that I could categorize, my goal from that was not to go back to the radiologist and say, well, just look harder. For instance, the AI would pick up isolated pulmonary emboli in the right upper lobe. We miss those more frequently than anything else. So what would you do normally in a peer review environment? You'd go back to your radiologist and say, we'll look harder in the right upper lobe. But how often are you actually having these isolated PEs in the right upper lobe? You'd be wasting a lot of their time looking really hard there. Instead, the AI can pick it up. So let the AI pick up those things that we might be missing 
but then you as a radiologist go back. And that's what I did. So I was getting these discrepant cases for whatever, a missed pulmonary embolus, a missed cervical spine fracture, a missed intracranial hemorrhage. And I would go back into that exam knowing what was missed. And I was looking very specifically at that one finding and I would find more than the AI found. In fact, I would find more than I would have found initially looking at the examination. And that's where you get that massive improvement in accuracy. There's a, a part of our, our brain or a function of our brain called priming. And that when your brain is primed to look for a certain thing, that you find way more of it. And I think that's what the AI can help us do. So the AI will find a finding, then your brain is primed for that. You'll go in and you'll look for more of those. You'll find more rib fractures. You'll find more pulmonary emboli and you'll find more things that are related to it. And these are things that are subtle that you wouldn't have found to begin with. So that's the kind of phenomena that I'm talking about when you have the AI do a component and that's its job. And then the radiologist comes in behind that and uses that to improve themselves and improve upon the AI. It's really a, a, a nice sort of human cybernetic collaboration. So many places to go with that. I, I think maybe one of the next questions that, that primes for me is how does that translate into value? So you're thinking a lot about value-based care models. One of the things we talked about 10 years ago, you were saying commoditization of radiology. There's so much pressure on reimbursements. Here you are killing yourself and your colleagues try and add value. Who pays for the value and how do you, you know, provide service that people care about? You know, saying, oh, I found three more pulmonary emboli than I would have otherwise. That's great. How do you get people to care, to pay, especially when, you know, groups are really hurting right now and not just groups, but hospitals are hurting and no one's feeling great. Very good question, because part of the reason why artificial intelligence is not rolled out and despite it having, uh, I think, a really great potential impact, uh, part of the reason anyway, is because there's no economics behind it, or we have to define the economics behind it, the business case. And we as physicians don't always like to put our business hats on and think about the business case, because what do we care about? We care about our patients. We care about our, our referring clinicians. If you're a radiologist, right, you're the clinician's clinician. But in this case, in order to get to that value, you have to put your business hat on and think about the business case. So value is in the eye of the beholder. And it depends who you are talking to uh, about what the value is for them because it's different. So if you're talking to a radiology practice and you're putting your business hat on, so you're talking about a business case, how can a radiology practice afford the cost of innovation? Innovation costs money. There's no extra dollars. Where are you getting those dollars from, right? Reimbursements are going down. The cost of a radiologist are going up. The cost of running a radiology practice is going up significantly. Where's the money coming from? Well, it only comes if you can somehow save money or gain money from using the technology. So in a radiology practice, there's only a couple of ways of doing that. One is to improve radiology efficiency. And right now that's what you'll hear. Uh, I think all of the AI vendors out there are recognizing this now. So when they come to a radiology practice to sell their AI, they're gonna talk about improved efficiency with their tool. Because if you improve your efficiency and your RADs take less time to do the same amount of work, well, you can take on more work and that brings in the dollars to pay for the innovation. The other thing that I've seen, at least in a radiology practice, is people are, we know radiologists are severely burned out, right? 40 to 60% of RADs are burned out. That's a pretty awful number. 
So if you can do anything to decrease the mental fatigue of a radiologist, decrease burnout, or even decrease the med mal risk, then those are things that radiologists or red practices might be willing to pay for. So that would be the business case for radiology practice. I'll say it's a lot more difficult than I think a business case for a hospital client. And why is it? It's because efficiency is not additive. If you have one AI model that makes you 10% more efficient and another model that makes you 15% more efficient, you don't get to put them together and say, now I'm 25%, right? Like I'm going to take 10 AI models and I'm 100%. Totally. So that it's not additive, but I, I think it is something definitely worthwhile to talk about and think about. And there's some AI models out there that primarily improve rat efficiency. And those are the ones that you should go to a radiology practice to sell. But many of the other ones, I think, provide even more value for a hospital. So let's talk about them. The value for a hospital is most hospitals are still fee-for-service. And so improving the income or revenue for a hospital means doing more procedures, having more patients in the system, or you could decrease the cost. And costs are related to like decreasing the length of stay for a patient in a hospital or increasing the throughput of a patient through the ED so they can get more patients through. These are the things that you have to think about if you want to sell to a hospital. And I will say that in our experience in using a lot of these computer vision tools, these AI tools, many of them, because they help us find things, they will increase the revenue for a hospital because you're, you're finding more pathology that's going to get procedures, going to get treated, going to get followed. Not only that, but for the patient, it's actually the right thing to do. So, you know, as physicians, it makes us feel good because the business hat always feels very businessy. Like you're, you're not doing it primarily to make money, right? That's what a company does. You're doing it as a practice to take care of patients. So it also improves patient care. So those are things that, that drive value and they are appropriate business cases. Unfortunately, there's no reimbursement like from CMS that is just saying, hey, I'll just pay for it. And that way you don't have to worry about the business case and you can just concentrate on the things that really add value. Uh, one other point I'll make is that how do we know that all of these things that we're doing are actually adding value to the patient? We know they're adding value to the practice if they're improving efficiency or decreasing mental fatigue. We know they're adding value to the hospital client if they're getting more procedures. And But is that adding value to the patient? And it's something that I think we need to think about. You mentioned like, hey, if I find a small PE, what if you send that patient into the hospital, you treat them and they have a complication, right? That's not adding value. That's actually making their experience worse. And we're not quite there yet in knowing how many of these things are adding value. We definitely have anecdotal evidence that even subtle findings prove that there is value to the patient. But I think in the future, we're going to be using artificial intelligence to help us determine and triage Here's a patient with a right upper low PE. Well, this patient with their history, they should be hospitalized, but another patient should be triaged somewhere else. And that really also takes the patient care aspect into mind. We just don't have enough of that data yet. You know, when you describe the three sort of pillars there, I think we started this conversation on the exponential versus linear benefit. And at the end of the day, improving radiology efficiency is only going to be linear. It can only be linear. Even if you replace an entire radiologist, it's still linear benefit. You're taking their salaries down. And so finding those exponential benefits to the hospital system or to the patient populations is just so key. You mentioned that there's not a ton of models yet that have emerged. 
maybe the best I can know of is Viz. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the success of that model, like what you're seeing in terms of you know reimbursement codes for those types of AI applications. And then maybe just more broadly, what is your role in trying to shape that narrative? I imagine one of the benefits of scale that you have now is having the ears of big hospital systems because you now are in a lot of hospitals and you know politicians and, and the like. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you mentioned Viz and reimbursement. I think they were really innovative as a company and being able to go to CMS. They were the first group to get what is called the NTAP payment. NTAP stands for New Technology Add-on Payment, which is a payment that CMS will give to anyone in the hospital, so an inpatient, someone that gets admitted to the hospital. And there's a lot of provisos around it. It's, you know, you only get the money if the hospital is losing dollars on that DRG payment. But the reason why they got it was because they were able to prove that by using their technology, you could improve patient outcomes. And that's what CMS cares about, which is great, right? Like finally a, a payer is aligned with, we want to do things that are appropriate for patient outcomes. So that's why they created this. And what actually improved the patient outcome was not necessarily the AI itself. So they had an AI technology that would detect things like a, a large vessel occlusion. So if there was a clot in one of the central vessels of the brain, the, the MCA or the ICA, if there was a clot in there, those clots can um, prevent the blood from getting to the brain and that's what causes stroke. So that's what the AI did. It found the, these large vessel occlusions. But what improved patient outcomes was the communication tool, the platform that they had it on. And they allowed that information to go to all of the interventionalists that would be taking care of this patient. And since we know that time is brain, the quicker you intervene, the better the outcome is. And they were able to prove that. I think that was wonderful. That would enable the NTAP payment. It's a temporary payment. I believe it ended already for stroke, but it allowed hundreds of hospitals to be able to adopt this because it gave a mechanism for, for paying for it. Now, the, the one thing I'll mention is that remember how we talked about how AI needs to be used with, well, we were talking about the radiologist, but it's really whatever human expert is there. And you need to understand how the technology works in order to ingest it appropriately. And if you are using an AI system that bypasses the radiologist, which some of these systems were, it's not an appropriate use of the technology. And in fact, the FDA sent out a warning letter to any AI company that was essentially bypassing the radiologist. It was back in April of last year saying these tools are not meant to be autonomous. You can't make decisions based on these tools alone. You need to have the expert, which is the radiologist, agree. Uh, and so the, the ones that you want to look at, because these platforms are really great, but the ones you want to look at are ones that include the radiologist within that discussion and not just go directly to an interventionalist that might not understand how to properly consume these tools. First of all, I didn't know that NTAP was temporary. So thanks for the education there. And, you know, I, I just assumed kind of that was now part of the way the billing worked. We talked about how radiology is so integral as part of the workflow the real innovation was on the workflow and trying to find those other areas where workflow becomes improved. This is like a dumb example, but anytime someone says chat GPT is taking all the jobs, 
all I can think about is how when I tr ever call Delta to change a flight and they're like, can you please go online first or, you know, do our manual prompts? I'm like, yeah, no, I get it. But I, I absolutely know that I have to speak to a human to solve this problem or I wouldn't be calling you. I kind of think that's what's going on with radiology where everyone's like, well, everyone's just going to automate. It's like, well, no, that's not the workflow of radiology. Like I called the radiologist because I actually have a question <laughs> for the radiologist that I would like them to answer. And so I think there's a really good example in the Viz case where I'm trying to consult as quickly as possible to figure out if, if this person's a candidate and then we can work as a team to figure out how to treat this patient. Maybe it's surgery, maybe it's uh, medicine, uh, maybe it's not. And finding a way to speed that whole collaboration process up was the real innovation, not the identifying an LVO using image recognition. So it's a profound rethink on where the value sits. But now, so, so that's one example, but maybe the exception that proves the rule because there, there's not that many examples of this yet where total workflows have been reimagined and people are willing to pay 10 times as much for services. So are there areas where you see that coming? Well, the things that we're not very good at as humans are the things that we should be concentrating on with the use of this technology because the ROI will be much better, right? The ROI of this care coordination solution is huge because we as humans don't do it so well. Um, but the ROI of, of finding an LVO, you know, maybe it's 10% because we're only missing not even 10% of, or yeah. it's probably 5%. So humans are not good at care coordination. Now there's a lot of places that we're trying to coordinate care. One of them is when there's an acute finding and we need to call to, to get that acute finding taken care of. We make phone calls. We do it very old fashioned ways using mm -hmm. old technology because that's what's available to us. And so this made a huge improvement, but there's other improvements in care coordination that people are looking at. So now imagine that you have a finding that's not a critical finding, but it's an important one. Maybe there's a a lesion in the liver that needs follow-up or a lung nodule that could be cancer and we don't know standpoint actually happened to get this patient back and that the patient follows up. So it's, it's actually a difficult problem. And what we find is if the radiologist doesn't provide all the information that's needed. So what is the lesion? People always say that. What is the follow-up exam that's needed? What is the time frame for that exam? And um, if we don't provide all of that, then the follow-up almost never happens. So is there a tool that can assist us with this follow-up? Yes, that's another care coordination tool. So, and, and some of those are out there, they're created. There's some early products that are pretty good that are out there that people could buy that has an ROI for the hospital because they're getting more patients back into the system and it also improves patient care. So that's another kind of care coordination. Then you could imagine other care coordination. So let's say, now we know that a patient has cancer. Maybe there was a biopsy that proved some lesion was cancer. How do you make sure that that patient gets to the right cancer treatment facility? Or if you see an abscess on a CT, and I mentioned there's an abscess on the CT, what I would love is if that patient would go directly to interventional radiology to get it drained. How do I care coordinate between those things? So there's so many different mechanisms by which you can do it. And some of those AI tools are already out there in the market. So we only have a few minutes left. Rapid fire questions for you. I run an education company. Our target audience is radiologists with 10 years of experience looking to gain new skills. The reason I bring this up is one of the number one questions we get asked is, do you have courses on AI? And I'm struggling to figure out how to think about that because on the one hand, it's all anyone wants to learn about. On the other hand, the adoption is still super low. We are a CME platform. So we're not gonna just say, here's how to use Viz AI. 
you know, here's how to use rapid AI or whatever it might be. How should we think about that? Because earlier you talked about how one of the core ways you're driving adoption within RP is through education and training. Um, now you don't have those same problems because you guys are adopting your own internal tools and saying, hey, here's the RP way that we kind of recommend that you guys think about these things. You know, and where we position ourselves is like when something's ready for the community radiologist in Idaho, you know, come to our platform and learn. So, so how do we think about that? Yeah, it's a difficult problem, but I will say that you don't, as a radiologist or as a user, you don't need to know the very details of how the model works, right? It's it's statistical, mathematics, and all of that matrix multiplication. You don't need to understand that per se, but what you need to understand is where the AI works really well and where it's going to have deficiencies. And those are general things that we spend a lot of time talking to our radiologists about. I think everyone needs to know that. The general radiologist user, they all need to know where AI works well and where it doesn't and how you can deploy it within your workflow. They also need to understand how AI models change over time, right? The model itself isn't changing, but the data coming in is changing. And so that you can get different results, you know, if you're at a different hospital system than you do at, at the hospital system you're working in. So just to make sure that the radiologists are properly consuming the AI, there's that kind of information. What we do is we have a higher level user that we call our AI champions. So we take one at every one of our local practices, someone who's really interested in AI, and we go even deeper with them. We tell them more about the different tools, about automation bias and how to combat that, about some of the ways that these th systems work, what their training was on. And we go into a deeper level of understanding. So we have some people who are super users who really understand more deeply about AI. They're in every single local practice, but then every radiologist within that practice We'd like them to know at least a basic level so that they're using these appropriately. And the buttonology, stuff like that, like that is the least of the problem. Well, uh, it sounds like you have a whole curriculum already designed. So thank you for signing up to teach the course <laughs> on AI. We're, we're looking forward to that. Last question for you. How do you do it all? You're a radiologist, you're a mom, you're an entrepreneur, you're running a mile a minute. Like what advice do you have for, for anyone out there who's you know trying to make their career? Yeah, I, I think don't be afraid. I don't do it all, right? No one does. What you see is a result of a cumulative work over many years. And I think what I have is, is just grit and a strong work ethic. I'm doing something I enjoy. So I don't mind spending my free time reading about AI and, and staying up to date. So that makes a huge difference. I, I think the other thing is I have a wonderful husband who is extremely supportive. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to do anything. In fact, he was out of town a couple of weeks ago and I was home alone with my 15 year old who is very self-sufficient, but I was suffering. Like that was hard. <laughs> so it is impossible to do it all. I think that you have to have a great support group and, and a lot of grid. And also I was given the gift from my own practice of the ability to work on it hundred percent of my time. Well, amazing. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun to, to speak with you and I hope the audience has learned something about AI. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.